Is it even possible to be sane, calm and connected in the chaos of life and the chaos of parenting? Somewhere in our overscheduled and frantic lives, many of us seem to have lost our intuition around how to raise our kids and how to raise them well. And in an attempt to feel in control or feel as though we are good and worthy parents, we often engage in over-engineered parenting solutions. Sticker charts, reward ladders, timeout zones, naughty steps, you name it, I've heard it. But what we seem to forget amidst the chaos is that our children come with all they need to flourish to their full potential. And that in the world in which we've over-accessorized the parent-child relationship beyond recognition, we've left ourselves in a space of stress and in a space of forgetting how to do what we naturally do best. How can we untangle ourselves from the lives we've created? Let's find out. I'm Jackie Maguire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies translating them into easy-to-understand concepts and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work and relationships. Put simply, Mindbrew has been created to help people live the good life. In this episode, I speak with Shirley Pastroff, the author of The Mindful Parent. Shirley's a counsellor, mindfulness trainer and parent coach. She's trained thousands of parents in the techniques described in her book, and now works across the education and commercial sectors, as well as with individuals and families. She's also had a prior life. She's been a former BBC documentary maker and lives in Auckland with her husband and five children. The Mindful Parent and our discussion is a timely and quite freeing journey back to the heart of what really matters in parenting, a deep and lasting relationship with our kids. It's a book where there is more unlearning then learning. I hope our conversation enables you to sigh with relief, discover a new sense of joy, and a realisation that the expertise to parenting well is already deep within you. Shirley, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, I think a really wonderful place to start, even though I have already introduced you, is to give us a sense of how how did you get into this field of not only mindfulness but parenting and, and combining those two things together? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the Mindful Parent book that I've written comes out of a Mindful Parenting course that I've been running for about five years now. And uh, that course really came out of a collision of my professional and personal lives. So um, from a professional point of view, I'm a counsellor and I work with a fair amount of mindfulness in my counselling practice. But in my personal life, I'm also a mum of five. So I've got ooh, now they are 18, 17, 14, and the twins are just turned 12 yesterday. So Wow. Um, <laughs> Busy. That's the age range of my kids, yes. And when I started um, working with mindfulness, they were probably between 5 and 11, something like that, maybe 6 and 12. And um, 
I started running general mindfulness courses and they were small little groups and we got to know each other quite well. But one of the questions that kept coming up uh, to me was how do you do mindfulness with with such a busy home, such a lot of children in the home? And I thought, really, honestly, I'm not. Like I found that the practices of mindfulness were making just a really huge difference in my personal life away from my partner and kids. I was finding a bit more peace. I, I have a history of some anxiety from my mum's side of the family. And um, I found it was making quite a big difference. But with the kids, there was just there was just such a lot of yelling, such a lot of crying on my part as much as the kids. And I just knew when these people were asking me these questions that somewhere underneath the personal uh, changes that were taking place. There was this whole untapped area where really when the kids behaved, I behaved and when they didn't behave, I didn't behave. You know, it was quite a simple equation. So I just got the bit between my teeth and thought, you know, if this material is really worth the, you know, the neuroscience claims that it makes, then it's got to work when you're trying to get five kids out of the door on a Monday morning and not just, you know, if you've got a 10 day retreat in Tibet or something like that coming up. And so I spent about six months, I think, just researching and writing and practicing. You know, there's nothing like having five kids at home to have this ready-made laboratory um, right on my doorstep to practice all the material. And then out of that, I wrote the course and I've been running it about five years now and finally put the course into a, a book form yeah so that so you bring so you bring theoretical expertise and lived experience to the table Shirley absolutely absolutely yeah so so I think most people listening to us will go I have an understanding of what parenting is (laughs) some people may have an understanding of mindfulness which you know, in, in the shortcut for those that might go, what's the what's the actual definition? Well, to be my geeky psychologist, it's about being present in the moment, non-judgmental and accepting of things that come up for you, either internally or externally. Shirley, what's your definition when you mesh those two together? How do you describe mindful parenting? Yeah. Um, I think the easiest way to do it is to do it sort of slightly separately first and then combine them. So just like you, my very, very brief um, description of mindfulness is paying attention with curiosity and kindness. So I use the word PACK, P-A-C-K, to help me remember that. But with parenting, the key... What does that actually mean? What is it like, just if we stop there yes. for a yeah, second, yeah. How, do I, how do I, as an adult, as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, as a worker, how do I pay attention with curious curiosity and kindness? How do I do yes, that in my everyday life? Yeah, it's both really simple but really hard to do. So what we generally do in life is our brains are jumping either ahead or behind. So more often ahead than behind, but sometimes we ruminate on, you know, I could come off this interview and go, oh, my God, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say that? That would be the thinking backwards. Thinking forwards would be, oh, I'm not ready for the weekend or I haven't done the food shopping or I need to plan. It's the kind of unending to-do list. So what we often find is the times we're present in the moment, we're ruminating over things that we're not maybe happy with. And so what mindfulness is trying to do is taking the idea of can we actually be in the moment in a different brain state? 
So the attention is in the moment, but the attitude is one of kindness or curiosity, which would simply be at a very basic level could be, can I stop in any moment and notice my house? Can I notice my body? Can I notice my coffee? Can I notice my child's freckles? Not with any kind of, oh, I've got to feel ecstatic, but just a sense of kindness might even be pushing it. That's why I love the word curiosity, because it doesn't even need to be kind. It just needs to be, oh, I'm interested in the flavor of my coffee. I'm noticing my home. Yes, there's a lot to do, but I'm noticing that this is my safe place or I chose the sofas and I actually like them. It's that. So, Shirley, when I look at my house, I just see mess everywhere. And before I had my gorgeous girl who I love, we lived in a show home and I liked that. You know, everything was spotless and my husband's an architect, so all our furniture's very carefully uh, selected, a.k.a. it took us a year to choose the cushions we wanted on our couch. (laughs) You can can laugh now. I hope they're Uh, good. That's the kind (laughs) the dog ate them about three months after we bought them, so that's the laugh to the story. Um, But now when I look at my house, I see you know, wheat books sprayed on the wall behind me. I see the toys that I tidied up last night and they're now all over the floor. And so how do other parents like me who love their children, and I know from a cognitive perspective that this is life and I want my girl to be relaxed at home and I don't want to be a parent that runs around and just tidies up all around her and I try really hard to do that. But inside, it's distressing to see the mess for me. So how do I? How do I go? I'm going to be curious and kind about my about myself and my messy house yeah. when it goes against everything I've lived like before I became a parent. Yeah, and against everything that's going on physiologically in your body when you look at the room, which is an instant rush of a little bit of cortisol and a little bit of adrenaline will be going on in your body. So. Um, I mean, this is why we desperately need practical techniques, which is why I love your questions, because the I so much mindfulness is, is fluffy rhetoric. So for me, the way that I would approach that is I would I would use an emotion processing technique, which would just simply name the emotion, high feeling of frustration. Let's say it's frustration, or it could be overwhelm that there's too much mess. But you find whatever the feeling feels the strongest. You can say this out loud if nobody's there and you don't mind, or you say it internally. It makes perfect sense given the situation, which is that this room is a little bit messy. As soon as you acknowledge the emotion and you validate that it makes perfect sense, ironically, it decreases rather than increases. And what starts to happen is you go from tunnel vision, which is what I call red brain, which is where what you can see is the mess in the room, but that isn't the whole picture. And as soon as you go, high feeling of frustration that this room is messy and it used to be so tidy, makes perfect sense. As your body reduces just a tiny bit of cortisol, it gets replaced with the other hormones like oxytocin. And oxytocin will be the hormone that starts to go, but I really love my little girl. And so the wheat bits on the sofa will go from being simply a, a sort of two-dimensional problem to a three-dimensional thing within a bigger story. Doesn't mean you don't have to still clear it up. And it also doesn't mean you wouldn't like an incredibly tidy 14-year-old, sorry, 14 month old but your clever brain will now open up and say they don't exist I want my 14 month old in my home so now the mess is incorporated 
into the bigger picture by just using a really simple, curious emotion processing technique. Nice. So the mindfulness component component of mindful parenting is I'm going to pay attention to what's going on internally and externally with curiosity and kindness. And if I notice in my paying attention that some emotions are unpleasant for me, then a useful way of regulating those unpleasant emotions is to get good at naming what's going on, sitting and validating rather than pushing back against that or I should be feeling like this or I shouldn't be feeling like that and and then giving it some space to dissipate to enable my brain to widen and go, actually, whatever I've felt disgusted by, upset by, frustrated by is part of a larger picture. And by doing that, naming and validating, it enables my brain to open up. Yeah. Nice. So the second part of that definition then, parenting component. Yes. Yes. So the parenting component here, which is really key to enjoying parenting and one that I, you know, didn't have for the first six years, I think, maybe even 10 years of parenting, was recognising that the parenting piece is paying attention with curiosity and kindness fundamentally to me and not to my children. So Mm. my focus when the kids were tricky, which when there were five of them, was almost constant. Like there weren't many times where all five of them were doing the right thing at the right time. Um, was that my focus was on them. What could I do to change them? What could I, underneath I was criticizing my parenting, but in terms of action, I was trying to get them to behave better. There was consequences, there were rewards. There was all sorts of things going on to try and change their behavior. What mindful parenting does is it focuses first on me as the parent and on what I call my brain color, which is simply recognizing the state the brain state that I'm in before I engage in the situation with my kids because there's a whole lot we can do in that space to enable us to be in a really healthy place in order to engage with our children in their difficult behavior. And I think it also gives us more agency. It can feel daunting to say it's all about me, but when you're paying attention to yourself with kindness, not with judgment, then it being all about me is fine because it means what I'm starting to say is when I can move myself from a state of stress to a state of calm, then I can engage with my children's behavior in a really much more effective way because children actually really listen to parents when they're in a calm state. They don't listen at all well to parents when they're in a stress state. So mindful parenting is paying attention with curiosity and kindness, but first of all to myself as a parent. Because surely that's that's almost flipping what we hear all the time on its head, isn't it? Because, you know, there are self-help books, podcasts, readings that you can do up your wahoo around how to be a good parent and most of the focus of those books is on your children so do you use reward systems what's positive parenting let's focus on the positive behavior not the unhelpful behavior you know and I suppose what you're saying is actually let's flip that back you know put the oxygen mask on yourself first for people that like that saying you know actually if I 
if I can look after my own mental health and well-being, if I can recognise the state I'm in, if I have got tools and strategies to help get myself into a calm space, then actually no matter what my kids are doing, I'm going to be able to respond more helpfully and in return they'll respond to me more helpfully when I'm calm. And so that really is a reversal of focus, isn't it, compared to what we hear so much about uh, in the parenting sphere. Yeah, it really is. And I think you're completely right. I think the reason so much has been written from that perspective is that it doesn't work. So more and more and more attempts are being made to write from the perspective of trying to change our children. And it really doesn't work. So finally, with the help of some neuroscience research coming out, are we recognizing that our children are actually responding to the overflow of the atmosphere in the home? And that could be within each parent. And if there are two parents in the home, between the two parents. And in all the years of working with clients, I ask every one of my clients, tell me about your childhood. And they don't describe the detail. They describe the feeling, the sensory feeling. Did they feel safe? Did they feel judged? Did they feel like they weren't quite good enough? Did they feel they were disappointed? Did they feel mum and dad were a bit busy? It's a general feeling that they always come out with. There's a few specific memories in there, maybe camping holidays or some intense moments of connection. But for us as children, we grew up responding to the general atmosphere. And I'm talking the average atmosphere. I'm not talking about no yelling. I'm talking about generally, was it a childhood in which we felt uh, non-judged, that we felt unconditionally accepted? And that's based on parents feeling that about themselves first, because we parent out of the flow. So we cannot be in a situation where we're being critical to ourselves or racing around busy and offering our children sort of strong unconditional connection you'd have to be heroic to do that none of us actually can so when we're working with our own brain and our own mental health we literally we just overflow into our children's lives and you'll start to see children change quite dramatically quite uh quite quickly, actually, when a parent's cortisol and adrenaline levels start to reduce in the home, you can actually see it in a child's physiology. And I guess in the area we most want change, which is behavioral management, but you will also see it in confidence, in self-esteem, in sleeping, in areas like bedwetting. There's extraordinary areas that change when parents start working with their own, the chemistry in their own brain. So to explore that further, because I suppose what you're saying, our children have some fundamental needs. We know that they need to feel safe. They need to feel attached and connected. Uh, Consistency is very helpful for children to feel calm, etc. And in your book, you very nicely, Shirley, talk about three different colour brains. And I think that's a really useful model for Uh, for parents to be able to kind of check in, pay attention to where they're at from kind of a calm through to a panic kind of level scale or where where their physiology, where their mental state is at. So I'm wondering if you could talk us through Mm. uh, your three coloured brains because I think some people may have heard about the green and the red, but the orange I found interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is a new one to some people, although the most common of the three. So I'll start with red. So red brain is just the description of the fight or flight brain state, which most of us recognise as an idea. But 
The fight flight brain hormonally is filled with cortisol and adrenaline. It's beautifully designed for emergencies. So it's the brain state that we go into if you imagine you see a child run into the road. It's the tiger in the jungle brain state. So everything in our physiology becomes just beautifully wired for exactly what we need to do, which is to go and rescue the child. So we would do things like push people out of the way, which is absolutely right and effective to do. So we become kind of judgmental. We know what to do. We become unkind. We'll push people. Our muscles tight. Our uh, tunnel, we go into tunnel vision. Our heart rate goes up. Our breathing goes up. What we can't see is that inside our body, all our kind of um, the areas that are shutting down are things like our digestive system, our sleep cycles, our hunger and thirst drives, because those things would be unhelpful in the moment. Like if you saw a child run into the road and thought, oh, I really need a sandwich, I'm a bit hungry, you're not going to rescue the child in the road. So it will be hours before you know that you're hungry again or that you needed the toilet or something like that. So our body goes into this really um, kind of streamlined version of itself in order to achieve a job. And it's a temporary one. What we so that's know, my lioness brain that yes, I'm going to protect my cub. Absolutely, you're going to protect your cub. Now, the difficulty with this brain state in slightly lower levels of cortisol and adrenaline, it's now called the stressed brain state. It's exactly the same physiology that we go into if we live in quite busy lives when, I don't know, a bill comes in that's tricky for us to pay, or our toddler has a tantrum, or our teenager slams the door, or we we have a fight with a partner or we get big things like getting made redundant, they're not life-threatening situations, but our body goes into the red brain state initially. And it's actually the very worst brain state to manage particularly relational problems because you haven't got anything in your physiology that works in an interconnected way with somebody else because you're in an unkind state. You're in a very tunnel vision state. You haven't got the bigger picture going on. So if you go back to the which bits on the sofa, what you're talking about, that was a tiny bit of red brain, but you went into kind of tunnel vision around the room. And so what we're looking at is in non-life-threatening situations, how do we get ourselves out of the red brain state so we can actually be effective, especially with our children when they trigger us, but actually in many areas of life where red brain isn't helping us. And there's almost an epidemic now of people Many of us living in low-level red, but parenting seems to be an area where that's particularly pronounced because we're just under a heck of a lot more pressure. Hmm. So, so in a very simple, in a very simple way, Shirley, we're not really being our best selves or our best parents that we can be when we're red because our brain is not designed to do that job when we're in that state. It's really not, and also it's a really tough brain to parent in. I'm all about kindness to the parents <laughs> as much, if not more than the kids. It's a really, really hard brain to love in. It's a really hard brain to forgive yourself in. It's a really hard brain to laugh in. It's a really hard brain to see two sides of a story in. So it's really exhausting way to parent. And lots of parents do, and I use the word heroic, parent fairly well, but struggling with the cortisol and adrenaline in their body. And by the end of the day you know even if you've managed it and you've you know, kept a lid on your 
frustration, your emotions often by the evening were absolutely shattered or hanging out for the next child, the nap in the middle of the day because of the effort of parenting with the wrong hormones really in the system for doing that particular job well. Okay, so that's our red brain. What's our orange brain? So what I'm going to do is just jump to the other side of the spectrum first because it's a little bit easier. So green brain is completely the other end of the spectrum. So if you tilt red upside down, if you like, green brain um, physiologically is when we've got relaxed muscles. It's when our heart rate is normal, our blood pressure is normal, our vision of what's in front of us is broad. So we're taking in lots of different... um, stimulus not just the one even our hearing goes broader rather than tunnel Uh, it's a very relational brain so in green um, the hormones are serotonin oxytocin and dopamine and although we don't need to know it in detail it's incredibly helpful to know just a teeny bit of each one so serotonin is just sort of general well-being at the base of most uh, antidepressive medications. I call it your happy drug. Yeah, the happy drug, just to make sure that we have enough serotonin in our body. Oxytocin is the connection-based one. So that's what you feel when you think about your little one asleep at the moment. You know, the hug drug. The grin comes on your face, the hug drug. And then dopamine is the reward and motivation um, hormone in the body. So that feeling of I'm doing a good job. I'm doing okay at this. That would be uh, dopamine and that also gives you the motivation to carry on doing the same thing that you've done. So those are the opposite of cortisol and adrenaline. They don't coexist. Very, There's slight crossover, but to keep it simple, they don't cross over with one another. So when you start to produce any of serotonin, oxytocin or dopamine, your cortisol levels will start to drop, which is really good news, but it's bad news the other way when cortisol starts to lift we drop the very hormones we need to get us back up so in green brain our body is pumping with one or all three of those hormones which changes and and a really good relationship with things like our sleep our sex drive our digestive system our immune system they're all working at their optimum so one of the myths around green brain is that it's sort of the yoga brain or the zen brain or the Friday night brain. It's actually the normal brain. It's the brain that we were physiologically and psychologically designed to live with outside of emergencies. When we flip into red brain, hopefully save a life, fight or flight. Um, You know, hopefully the tiger doesn't eat us, we survive. And then we resettle back to green. So green is everything from ecstatic down to neutral. It's not some kind of uh, incredibly peaceful Zen brain state, but it does just like red. It comes in a spectrum. So it's useful to think of your green brain as your homeostasis. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And green is work, rest, and play. So you can work really hard in green. You can rest really well in green and play really well in green. Work isn't the red brain state. And the reason this is really important is when we move into orange. Because if we're designed for green on a normal day and red for emergencies, there's this big gap of most of us don't experience life like that. But we may not spend all of our day in the red brain state, even if we're not in green. And so what we know, and this is a less well-researched brain state, and we've called it orange just to help with the traffic light metaphor, is that there's this sort of um, hiatus in the middle where our brain exists in a state of um, non-presence 
to the present moment. So it means, I call it the busy or the to-do list brain. It means that our brains are more or less never in the same place as our body. So generally ahead rather than behind. So um, we make a lot of to-do lists in orange, whether on paper, on the computer, or just in our brain. We're living just a few minutes or even a few years if you run a busy company ahead of ourselves all the time. And what that does is it leads to a feeling of competence. It leads to a feeling of productivity, but it actually doesn't. It's a very unrelational brain. So it can work okay in a business setting up to a point, but it doesn't work well with children. Because what happens when I'm in an orange brain and I'm with kids, Shirley? What they, they, they've really clued into brain state, even if they wouldn't know how to describe it. Kids feel your non-presence. So they can feel if you're lying beside them on the floor playing Lego with them and kind of not necessarily being super creative, but just with them, just enjoying the relationship or whether actually you're doing the pack and save shop in the back of your mind while you're with them. You can tell because they start to get a bit more fidgety. They become more demanding. They become much more difficult to please if we're in an orange brain state for the time that we spend with our children. So there's a, it's almost, I think of orange brain as you walk quite fast, you tend to frown, tend to have your head down rather than up. And you tend to jump if somebody drops something or if somebody doesn't do what you want them to do straight away, like a child. Orange brain doesn't have any cushioning around it. It trips over into red very quickly. So although it may feel like it's in control, as soon as it's very goal oriented. So as soon as somebody doesn't help you meet your goal and if you're child I don't know what she'll be like but I imagine like most children she won't be wired to meet your goals none of my five children really care about you know the hours it took me to cook their dinner or getting somewhere on time or keeping the house clean and tidy they're, they're just not their priorities so when I'm in orange brain I find them deeply frustrating I find their mess frustrating I find their questions frustrating I find the fact that they um, can't get themselves ready on time. All the things that are part of being a child, really, I find deeply frustrating and also impossible to change. Well, there's two elements here which you're talking about, Shirley. One is uh, what what do you see in your children in terms of how are they responding to your mental state? Mm. And, you know, I have a very live example of this last week. I do my very best to schedule all my work when either uh, Orla is with her nanny, which she does two mornings a week, or during nap time, so that when I'm with her, I'm present. Uh, but last week I had a phone call and it couldn't, you know, it couldn't fit in those times, so I did it while she was with me. Uh, and through through that half an hour phone call, she proceeded to pull every item <laughs> out of the kitchen cupboard. She sat in the kitchen drawer. She whinged. She moaned. She cried. She hugged my leg. It was like, Mum, I want your attention. You know, when I hung up the phone and was then with her and on the floor with her and playing with her, she was impeccable. So that is an absolute example of what you're talking about in terms of our kids can pick up whether you're meeting their needs or not, whether you're present with them. I think the flip side to that is, you know, from what I know about neuroscience, your brain state, whether that be green or orange or red, impacts the way in which you see the world and the lens in which you look at and how you interpret things. And 
again, you know, I'm very happy to share at the start of this year, we were very busy in our family. I was pretty anxious. And so I was probably in an orange red brain. And so I would get frustrated or, you know, all why aren't you sleeping? Why aren't you following the rule book? You know, and I was kind of, I would get frustrated through that lens of what am I doing? Why am I not doing parenting good enough, etc. You know, I am now much calmer. Our life is much calmer through some very active decisions we have made. And I was reflecting with my mum that all it does what all kids do. She, do. she does things that if you're in a red brain would be frustrating to you. And now I go, gosh, aren't you clever? Aren't you amazing that you're being so determined about that? You know, and I can see that through a light of learning and growth and that it, it doesn't frustrate me at all. But that is purely a shift in my mental state and the lens I look through rather than her doing anything different. Anything different. And there's also, I think, some really good news in this as well in that although it can sound like oh my gosh so how then do you cook a meal and have children how then do you get jobs done what's what happens is that our children are actually really resilient when they get enough what I call green brain connection and it doesn't mean stopping doing everything that you're doing it means that when you're doing what you're doing you're doing it in a green brain state because green is a productive working brain and it can actually be very um it's very welcoming to a child to have a parent in the house who's working hard but who is in green now the younger they are the more they want that connection to be direct but as they get plenty of it as they get older they're actually really fine in a home with a parent who's in green in the next room doing their work, doing their gardening, doing their cooking, doing whatever, as long as there's an invitation that the child can pop in at any point and be welcomed, not necessarily stopped though. So when a parent says to a child, I'm about to cook dinner, you're really welcome to come sit up at the bench and chat to me. I am not a great cook, so I'll just nod and grunt, but you tell me about your day. They're absolutely fine. They don't need full-on intensive eye-to-eye contact all day because we'd never get anything done. What they don't do well with is when we're whizzing around the house trying to get stuff in an orange brain state because it's actually quite, um, when I say repellent, it's attractive and repellent to a child. They're drawn towards it because they want to check you're still connected to them because they can feel the disconnect that's going on but they also so this run is coming away back to it. the idea surely that that connection is critical for them yes but the connection and their little brains are on the observation yeah. for that all the time they are but the really good news that I found through this is connection isn't about time and being with geographically it's about the color of your brain so when you're in the home with them in orange it isn't connection when you're busy doing other things and you're in green and they can hang around you or not, it is connection. So when you leave them at the school gate and you've had an okay morning with them, they feel really connected, even though they're at school or at kindy. When there's been a bit of an altercation before they leave to go to kindy or school, they feel a bit disconnected when they're apart from you. So the really good news, it doesn't mean we have to spend more time with our kids. It doesn't mean that we have to put more things into our day what it means is that when we can um, and I talk a lot about this in the book really quick and easy ways to move our brain into the green brain stage so much changes our children become less demanding they become easier to um, ask to do things they do a lot more jobs around the house they're much more fun to be around and actually you do want to play with them 
even though you may not have that much time to do it because the connection between you, the invisible connection between you has become more green than this orangey red muddle where children just aren't quite sure of you even when you're right beside them. So I'm I, I'm going to come to the how do we get into the green brain because that's how I want us to end this okay. conversation because yeah. I always find it's useful to leave people with the what to do. Mm. But before we get there, you know, you mentioned briefly, Shirley, that when you work with parents, you often ask about their own childhood. And each one of us as an adult has an attachment style from our childhood with our primary connectors. Mm. And I'm wondering about you know, yes, the busyness of our life, COVID-19, uncertainty, job loss, to-do lists, you know, having to be three different places all at once, feeling guilty about saying no to things, all of those life elements we hear about a lot in terms of what increases stress for us as adults living in 2020. I want to know from you, our deeper stuff, our historical things that have happened in our life, how can they impact our our green, orange, red brains, and how can our children trigger that in us sometimes? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I would say that they trigger it more than the the day-to-day stresses. So my experience of working with clients during this year has been really fascinating. I haven't yet come across a client for whom COVID created new stresses that weren't there before. They may have created new detail, but with everybody, even some of the medics that I've been working with, who obviously their job didn't turn out to be as extreme as they thought, but right at the beginning, there were huge amounts of stress for the medical profession. With each one, we discovered that the underlying stressor triggers were there from beforehand and were related much more to our own attachment with our own parents or our own trauma history. So the things that have happened during our lives are far more directly connected to which colour brain state we more automatically go to. That's not to say that we can't all grow towards green because it's our natural brain state. It's not some high-achieving brain state. It's actually coming home to home base. But for people that have been really well mirrored as children growing up by their own parents who've had great safe attachment figures, the green brain state is more easily accessible because green brain is basically fundamentally underneath it's I'm okay. Mm. And as a reminder, for those that are listening, there are three main attachment styles. N- number one, which is what we would all aim to have, but not all of us perhaps are that lucky, is secure attachment where our primary caregiver uh, enabled us to feel seen, heard and safe and responded to through our childhood. Uh, there's anxious attachment where perhaps our caregiver was able to meet those fundamental needs some of the time, but not all of the time. And therefore, as a child, we we grow and learn to be a bit on edge and alert and to really seek out uh, whether, whether our primary caregiver is there and meeting our needs. And the third is avoidant, where perhaps unfortunately our primary caregiver hasn't been able to meet those needs. And so the child has adapted to withdraw and to care for themselves so that they don't become reliant on that primary caregiver. So just to recap, um, as I know I've spoken about that earlier, 
So Shirley, when we think about everyday examples around those attachment styles, if you've got a secure attachment, you're probably more likely to be able to hang out in the green perhaps more often. I'm wondering about are are there any examples you have of if somebody perhaps has got an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style, what might happen in their family home that may trigger um, that stress state, remembering that our attachment style only really comes to play when we get stressed, when life is good, you know, it doesn't really feature. Yeah, and and particularly when we get stressed and we have children, our attachment style gets um, from our own childhood is most commonly triggered once we have children. So um, I can give you an example from my own experience um, is that so my uh, attachment uh, figures growing up mean that I have an anxious attachment style. My husband is more towards the secure attachment style, particularly with one of his parents. And when we were early, you know, we were young parents, it was really evident that when the kids didn't listen, I was ropeable. I was incensed, so disrespectful. I would, you know, go into some kind of a sermon or I would, you know, lose my temper or get quite tearful. My husband was very different and he seemed to find it was a problem to be solved if they weren't listening. And over time what we discovered was I hadn't felt listened to as a child growing up. So not being listened to is a massive trigger for me. I had no idea about this. I had no idea in that detail. Um, Whereas my husband's got other triggers, but not being listened to wasn't one of his. His um, mum listened to him really well when he came home from school, wanted to know all the details, those kinds of things. So for me, what's been really wonderful about paying attention with curiosity and kindness to myself has been I'm dealing with my trigger around not being listenable to. I'm not dealing with kids that there's something wrong with. All kids don't listen and we have to work out how to have a voice that gets them to listen. As soon as I'm screaming (laughs) or crying, I'm less listenable to and the pattern continues. So for so me, coming back to your three brains, yeah. If you know historically when you weren't listened to by the kids, which is very normal, yes. And in your calm brain, you would be able to rationalise that. Mm-hmm. But in an emotional space, yeah. when you didn't feel listened to, your brain went into red brain Absolutely. and responded from a red brain place. Absolutely, yeah. And the key to resolving that, rather than getting my kids to listen to me by dealing with them harshly from my red brain state was to use some of the tools and techniques that I talk about a lot in the book which was to process actually kindly process my own childhood and recognize that my children aren't my parents and that what my parents did wasn't ideal and has left me vulnerable in a particular area but I can work on that area kindly with myself and that's another process but the direction of my attention is how am I going to help myself feel the dignity of being a listenable to person given my parents didn't give me that so that when I'm speaking to my kids I'm listenable too and they start to hear me from a green brain state but it does require that just little bit of extra work in the middle but the direction of attention is towards myself rather than towards them and the lovely thing about that is it's so much more effective and it's it's really quite undignified to feel unlistenable to or not listen to and then start yelling 
because now you know why they're not listening and you sort of feel that double whammy of I don't think I'd listen to me either. Yeah, and, and Shirley, you, you have a section in your book around neuroplasticity, which absolutely is, you know, until the day we die, we've got the ability to rewire our brains. And, you know, one of the wonderful things is when we are in a curious space, when we come at ourselves from compassion, when we have support in uh, relationships to help us relearn, that actually we can, we can redevelop our attachment style as an adult. Just because things were doesn't mean they always are. Yeah. Now, I'm I'm going to get to that to the to the bit everyone's been waiting for, which is so. What do we do, Jackie? How do we get into the green? And you have wonderful quotes throughout your book, which um, you'll have to tell me how you found them all, because that's what I spend most of my time in a Google hole trying to find good <laughs> quotes. But you have two, which is children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them by James Baldwin. And I think that's a what we've been talking about, which is they can pick up your space, your state, what brain you are, and they'll reflect that back at you. So that's kind of the one half of the mindful parenting. And the other is Forever is Composed of Nows by Emily Dickinson. And I loved that. So Shirley, when we think about if I've picked up that I'm perhaps an orange or red or I'm wanting to proactively work about staying you know or spending spending the majority of my time in green if I can if I can do that um what are all your wonderful practical things that are going to help me as a parent be green for myself first for my family second okay um so what I would like to say first is they're much better described in the book. So there are six techniques all uh, throughout the Mindful Parent book. I will just touch on them um, because they're quite detailed. But just to give you a, a picture so that if you are interested, you can you know go to the book and find out more. But the, um, the first, the sort of, I guess the best framework to think of, it's a little bit like getting fit. There is no point... Uh, waking up tomorrow morning and saying, I'm going to run a marathon. So the place to learn green brain is not in the stress zone, is not in the conflict zone with a child. How do I respond to a child that's triggering me in a green brain way? So stepping back and starting with um, the idea of going to the gym, if you like, is to get fit so that not so that you get good at going to the gym, but so that you can enjoy your life more. So mindful, basic mindfulness practice is having a daily practice, two to three minutes a day is, is enough. Some people do more because they're, you know, that way inclined, but two to three minutes a day of taking time to notice just something very simple like your breathing or your senses. So what you can see here, taste, touch, and smell. The reason we use the senses or breath is simply because we're never without them. So we don't want it to be a once a week yoga practice because it's too inaccessible. Whereas we've always got our breath. So we're really just using anything to pay attention with kindness to in the moment. And for me, I found this really hard to do initially because it feels so pointless and a little bit boring unless you're, you know, a kind of yogic type. If you want to get more done and be a great parent, the last thing that feels effective is to slow down and do nothing. But what happens when we pay attention in the present moment with curiosity to anything, the taste of your coffee, the, you know, the smell of the air outside, the feeling of the breath in my body is it starts to train the brain, one, to be in the present moment and pay attention, and two, to do it without judgment. 
So even if you don't love the practice, your brain pathways, you mentioned neuroplasticity, start to just give you options on the monkey mind brain that's jumping forwards and backwards all the time. It gets well practiced at just noticing and being in the present moment so that when you really need it, you're not trying to start from scratch. So that would be the first one. The second one is the emotion processing tool, which we mentioned right at the beginning. You name your emotion and you validate your emotion and you let it reduce. Now, that can be a massively deep therapeutic tool, and I go into detail in the book on how to do that. But often it's just enough in the moment to take your attention off your child, notice your own frustration, reduce your frustration, and re-engage in the moment, either with great boundary setting or with some empathy or whatever it is you need in that moment. But you're f- And you've got a good acronym for that, Shirley. ALL. It's called ALL, which is Acknowledge, Linked, Let Go. And it's just one way of explaining how to do it. It means I acknowledge the name of my emotion. Am I, is it rage rather than frustration? Come on, let's be honest. Is it despair rather than feeling a little bit hopeless? You know, we need to name these emotions properly so that our body goes, yes, you've understood what's going on inside me. And we validate it instead of saying, for goodness sake, would you just calm down? What's wrong with you? We do that. It makes perfect sense. I've had no sleep. I've been up three times in the night. She's just thrown the porridge all over the floor. You know, we give ourselves permission to feel these things because feeling's different to expressing. Once we're allowed to feel them, our body can actually handle it. And usually it starts to dissolve and come out of the system. And then we can move into a more effective response. So for me, the mindful bit in emotions creates a gap between stimulus, rather than stimulus reaction, it goes stimulus, gap, response. And that's but we need a practice. We need a technique because none of us can just take a deep breath count to 10 and feel much different afterwards. Well, I'm going to I'm going to add in my own quote here because this is my favorite Shirley, which is by Viktor Frankl, which says between stimulus and response there is space, and in that space is our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and freedom. And that is one of my favorite quotes, which is exactly what you were talking about, give yourself the space so you can effectively respond rather than autopilot, reactively respond. And without adding guilt to any of our lives, the fact that he was an Auschwitz survivor and was able to write that there is a space, even with that level of stimulus, means that with five children who are fighting or not ready, getting ready for school, means that if someone has gone before in Auschwitz and been able to find that space and choose a different response, then surely that means my brain may somewhere, somehow have the capacity to do that. Yeah. Um, so just whizzing through the, the three others, uh, sorry, the, the four others, the first is just connection. So it's just recognising that our children don't need anything other than food, shelter and safety. Green brain connection is what causes their brain to thrive. Uh, it's not their schooling. It's not their diet. It's not their after-school activities. It's not where we go on holiday. It's not whether they have their own bedroom or not. It is simply how much green brain time they get. And it's only with one parent, which is great news. Two is brilliant, but it, it, it's a one adult in charge of them in green brain causes the child's brain to develop in healthy ways. Uh, Fourth one is conflict resolution, and I won't go through all the details of that, but I use an empathy and boundary approach 
to helping children get through their own difficult emotions and have some consistent boundaries. The tip to that one is simply that it doesn't work in red or orange. It does work in green. So if you've been trying to put consequences and rewards and boundaries in place around children in a red or orange brain state is deeply frustrating because they often do what we want them to do because they're a little bit scared of what they're going to lose but they do exactly the same thing the next day because their brain can't remember anything that was introduced to them in a red brain state because they go so you have a picture of a plane in your book Shirley which which has boundaries on one wing of the plane and empathy on the other so if we take that for a second for parents that may get themselves at loggerheads with their kids or in conflict can you talk us through that model about what does that look like and how could they you know practically use that to, to help them rather than perhaps getting stuck in a unhelpful you know rush passion yes (laughs) behaviors dynamic yeah so this is the hardest um thing that I write about in the book and comes once we've got some form of mindfulness practice in our life because it's really difficult to respond to um aggression or anger or disobedience or whatever it is in a green brain state unless we're a little bit practiced at how to find green in our busy lives in the first place but I work with empathy first so empathy is is um, the response to emotion and boundaries is the response to behavior and emotions and behaviors are hard to tell sometimes which is which but it's really helpful to recognize that they are different so we're at least looking out for which one this might be so if you've got a child that's really sad scared or angry about anything then we can respond with a really similar tool that I used for ourselves, um, the ALL one, which is called MLP, Mirror Link Pause. And how that works is that when a child's really frustrated or um, having a meltdown about something, then before we step in to try and do any fixing or solving or stopping, our best way through is to start with I can see that or I can hear that and you can change the words once you get used to them I can see that you are really cross with me I can see that you're so frustrated with your sister I can see that you've had a horrible day at school I can see that that friend who did that has really upset you and it can sound repetitive, but once we get the swing of it, we can change the scripting and making sure that what we're doing is not trying to reduce the emotion. It's, it, the reason it's called empathy is you're trying to skillfully stand in somebody else's shoes. So you're reflecting back to your child what you're seeing, what you're hearing. Often it can be quite loud because this isn't happening in a nice little, you know, emotion lab this is happening in our homes with lots of mess around it. So I can see you are so frustrated. And then you validate. Makes perfect sense. I just took the iPad off you. Makes perfect sense. You love the iPad and I just took it off. I just said, time's up. So again, we're not putting a learning lesson in. We're giving a validation. You are so upset because you lost that game and it makes perfect sense because you love winning. Winning's cool. Or you beat that team last week so you're even doubly upset so we're really layering on the levels of emotion and validation so that a child knows it's okay to feel these things and then at the end of that we pause now unless there's any safety 
lest somebody's getting really hurt, we don't have to engage with any form of quote-unquote discipline at this stage. We just pause and see what happens when we engage in validating our children's emotions. In my experience, a good half of the situations that I thought were conflict were just emotion. And once we validate our children's emotions, it's extraordinary how they often just get up and walk off or they go back to their game or they find something else to do or they move on from the loss um, because what they're wanting to be is heard, not solved. Mm. So we've got to help me in my green brain, I'm going to practice mindfulness for myself in a habited way because that helps my brain form new pathways, which becomes my homeostasis, my way of being, if it's practiced well. Um, I am going to spend really good connection time with my kids, green connection time, which, as you've mentioned, Shirley, doesn't mean I need to be eye-to-eye contact heavily, you know, involved in intense play, but I am just green and calm around them and the door is open, the emotional door is open for them to come and be with me whenever they need to. If, if things are getting tricky, if they are ramping up in their own emotion, I'm going to mirror that, I'm going to name that for them, I am going to validate that experience and then I'm going to pause and leave the space open for them. And you had one more. What's the last one? So the last one is the boundary setting around that, which is that there is a place for boundary setting without a doubt. Um, And what we know from um, the sound of a voice in kind of studies is that I call it the pilot voice, which means if you imagine the sound of the pilot of an aeroplane, if they started to sound either pleading or demanding, so for instance, say you heard the pilot say, if you don't eat your dinner, I'm going to come and take away your TV rights. Or if you don't put your seatbelt on, I'm not going to let you have your dinner tray. You start to go, I'm not really sure I want to fly this plane. It wouldn't just be a feeling of I don't like the pilot. It would be they don't sound like they're in charge. Or if they said, would you just please put your seatbelt on? You'd feel that same feeling of "Mm, not quite sure I'm enjoying flying this plane. And so when a pilot, obviously, they generally just have a sign and they don't speak. But when they say seatbelts on, the light comes on. There's a sense of I may not like it, but this thing is happening. And this is what I train. It takes a bit of time. What I train parents to do is to start to move their voice. And it's a very green, very certain voice into a place where we sound like we assume that what we're going to ask for is going to happen and there's a phenomenal shift both in the parent in the sense of I am in charge here but I'm in charge in green brain which is entirely different to I'm in charge in in a kind of red brain way and children start to hear the voice differently and start to respond in a way where you're not doing the repetition the pleading the consequencing and the rewarding in order to get really normal behaviors like getting dressed or uh you know not having the last biscuit when you've had the previous 10 or getting out the door at roughly time to get to school normal behaviors like this don't need consequences and rewards around them. That would be for more extreme situations. But it does require empathy for the fact the kid might not want to do it and a pilot voice that says it's happening 
anyway, but my emotional state is still open to you because I'm in green brain as I'm doing it. It sounds tricky, but if if you read the book, you'll get a sense of how the taking away of consequences and rewards is actually incredibly empowering for parents because we start to feel like we're working in much more of a relationship than in a kind of slot machine where we get this behavior when we take away this thing and we get this behavior when we put lollies in the jar, but we don't actually get any normal, hey, it's time to go and a child appearing ready to go, which is actually what should start to happen when we're functioning in a green brain household. And I know I only have five, but I do have five and they are of different genders. And these techniques have absolutely transformed our home and just to reiterate I am a mum who comes from an anxious background I am I never felt particularly competent or capable as a mum although I absolutely love my kids to bits and this stuff has changed me from an orangey red just stressed out exhausted parent to one in which my children haven't changed very much although they are way easier to handle and much more fun but the main difference has been that I can get myself back to green maybe 60% of the time. We're not talking about perfection here, but that's enough for a really enjoyable home. And also for my kids like being around me and they really didn't before. And for me, that that is kind of the greatest joy that I could have. And I wanted to end with Shirley. Do you have a cornerstone green brain memory that that has stuck with you in terms of, yeah, this works and it's worth it? Yeah. Um, I think my memories, and I'll, I'll keep them sort of non-detailed, have been with my teenagers that my top two, as they've started to engage in the sort of um, choices in life where they've had to think about um, substances, they've had to think about their friendships, they've had to think about their future, um, to watch the way that their brains are now really used to um, being, I'm, I'm a companion, I'm a support, but they assume now that they resolve their own difficulties with my help and that they trust their decision making. And that has all been because of me being a, giving them back their emotions, validating them and helping, letting them resolve their conflicts and working through their own emotions with my support rather than either fixing and solving or trying to control them. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And my third one is now hitting that stage of just watching their high level of self-esteem and their, and they don't make all good choices, don't get me wrong, but the way they respond to their failures, the way they take responsibility for their own life and the way they like themselves has been my greatest reward for parenting them in green. So mindful parenting, Shirley, isn't just about how you get by on the day-to-day. It's also about growing and developing uh, resilient adults that can navigate their own life well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to the mindful parenting episode of Mindbrew. I hope this episode enabled you to pause and reflect on your life as both an adult and a parent. I hope it provided an easing of guilt which so many of us carry around all the time 
and a fresh perspective that in order to support our kids to thrive, we must care for our own well-being and nurture our own green brain self first. And in keeping with Shirley's wonderful quotes that appear throughout our book, I want to end with this one. Love consists in leaving the loved one space to be themselves, whilst providing the security within which that self may flourish. And that's by Reina Ruka. So let's hold ourselves kindly, bring compassion to ourselves, and find ways to really green brain connect with our children. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mind Brew. Please share the episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. As always, it's so very much appreciated. Thank you, and have a good day.